Hello friends, it's Palmvir here. We hope as the world descends into the downward spiral that is COVID-19 that you're all taking care of yourselves. And we're happy to serve us some entertainment if you're now among the many socially distancing. This wonderful episode comes courtesy of linguist David Adger, who got to try and perform a live experiment on a tiny gatecrasher and aspiring podcast host, Stefania. So hello friends, this is Palm Bear coming to you from Spitalfield Market in London, where we have the pleasure of speaking today to Professor David Adger. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Parmvir. Thank you very much. Very good. So your official job title is Professor of Linguistics at Queen Mary University of London, is that right? It is. I've been there since about 2002, first as a reader, which is a weird British thing. Yes. And then, and then as, as full professor, uh, yeah, for the last 10 or 12 or something years. Yeah. But we've been perusing your blog posts and things, mm-hmm. and we know that your love for language goes back a very, very long way. I mean, what kind of 10-year-old? has a thing for linguistics. I think there's a lot of 10-year-olds that have a thing for linguistics. Yeah. So I don't even know. I mean, I, I, I put this preface in this book, book of mine, and it's like about how I read The Wizard of Earthsea when I was a 10-year-old and got totally flummoxed by the idea that they have there that, uh, like, the wizards there, they have a word for absolutely everything. Uh-huh. I mean, every single thing, every, like, you know, piece of foam on the on the wave and the sea or whatever that has a name, and obviously that makes no sense whatsoever, uh-huh. right? But it kind of just sunk in my mind, and uh, and then I started to kind of like get you know teach yourself Finnish and stuff <laughs> of like course. that. Of course, from our local library, which had a good collection of teach yourself books, and uh, in uh, High well, in Glenrothes, which is a town in the middle of. Fife and they have in Scotland. Finish. Public service libraries have a lot of excellent books in them. So it was Teach Yourself Finnish, there was Teach Yourself Classical Hebrew. Oh, wow. Uh, and I read all those things. I, I mean, I don't know what I was doing, but somehow <laughs> I just got totally obsessed by languages. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did that mean that you then went on and all of your studies essentially pointed you in the same direction? Or? No, not at all, because I, I was also really interested in maths. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really interested in physics, uh, and I was interested in ancient Greek. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, so it was, I, I think one of the nice things about the Scottish education system is that until really the end, you can do quite a lot of different things. So in England, uh, you tend to narrow yourself down to maybe three, four subjects, yep. which kind of forces people into either sciences yep. or arts or humanities. But in Scotland, I did, you know, yeah, I did ancient Greek and Latin and French and English and also physics and chemistry and maths. And it was, and actually linguistics, I mean, I kind of see it as like the maths of language. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, you know, language is, is all about the patterns that we use to communicate. And those patterns have structure. And to find out structure, you need maths. And uh, so... David's That's what linguistics does. David's yeah. getting very excited about this. <laughs> yeah. Because it's true, though. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Do you need to clarify which David was? Yeah, oh, the other David, yeah. Difficult. Like David Basanta, who people know is always hiding in the background, but doesn't like to have his voice on the mic itself. 
Although um, he is jumping up and down with excitement when I'm talking about the maths. He is currently wearing Oxford Mathematics T-shirt. Uh, my my old my old dean used to. Uh, when she would see me kind of, you know, sitting in a cafe by the university, we'd say, David, is that you doing your syntax sums again? <laughs> and I was like, yes. Because <laughs> it's true, it's just like little formulae and structures and diagrams and stuff yeah. when I work, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's, that becomes the kind of the science aspect of it. Because I think if you're talking about language and linguistics, you don't necessarily understand that there's a science behind it. Well, I mean, I think of language as fundamentally a natural object i mean it's a part of the eventually biological world right i mean we have it we have it in a particular kind of way that other animals don't seem to have it so what is it what is this thing that we have i'm part of the natural world as well as being part of the social world so how do we i mean what are our tools that we use to characterize the natural world that's the tools of science experimentation observation modeling all that kind of stuff yeah so that's why i so what is it that makes us different from animals in the sense that we have this language i mean they can communicate but it's not the same no i mean so like any phenotype language uh will share some things with other phenotypes uh and be different in different in other ways and and i think that one of the things about human language there are a number of things about human language that distinguish it from animal communication systems so one thing is that um, if you think about a, a word in English, like I don't know, microphone, which is what uh-huh. I see in front of you, uh, um, that word is quite a complex. It, it picks up quite a complex entity in our world, mm-hmm. right? And even something like tree yeah. picks out a really complex and quite abstract entity. It's yeah. got lots of different kinds of trees and stuff. So if you compare that to how animal calls work. Animal calls in general are way more limited. There's far fewer of them. Many of them seem to be uh, genetically um, part of the animal's repertoire of behaviors. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, for example, certain kinds of monkeys, uh, they might have uh, calls to signal that there's an attack coming from the air, right? So like, you might hear they might go hook or something like that and that will be that's an actual monkey call and that, <laughs> and that will be uh, there's an attack coming from the air or they might go crack and that yeah. might be like an attack coming from the, the bush uh-huh. so you know but, but they're really limited yeah. compare that to the even just the words that i'm using right now yeah. or that we use unreflectingly and almost instinctively in every moment of our living day they're just an entirely different order of things. But beyond the fact that it's a different order of things, I think there's also something very different we do with them. Animals really don't combine their calls yeah. in the way that we combine words. We have this incredible capacity to, to create new meanings, new thoughts, new things to communicate off the hoof without even really thinking about it, which can be a bit of a problem sometimes. Uh, and uh, we use the, the words we know and the ways that our languages allow those words to come together to do that, the patterns I mentioned earlier on. So that, I think, is uh, that's what really distinguishes us from other animals. Other animals don't have that and seem to be close to incapable of actually even learning it. When we talk about the kind of evolution of language, is there an idea of where it came from, where it started? There are many ideas. Ah. So uh, languages don't fossilize. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, we have written records of languages going back, I don't know, 6,000 years or so, back to Sumerian uh, um, cuneiform. Um, but, you know, beyond that, it's guesswork. <clears throat> so um, what people do is they make, you know, reasonable guesses on the basis of archaeological evidence. So, for example, there are certain kinds of behavior, uh, you know, carving things, art, uh, tying knots, that kind yeah. of stuff which do fossilize, uh, and those things could be seen as evidence of a certain level of cognitive sophistication that goes beyond other early hominins. So that might be evidence. So people keep pushing back the, the time from when we had, you know, where they think that language may have evolved in our species. A while back, people said, oh, it's at least 40,000 years. Now people are saying, eh, at least. 60,000 years, maybe a hundred. Some people think, you know, there's something like language going back even, you know, back into the Neanderthal uh, lineages. Oh, wow. So, but, you know, and that, it's very difficult to know. Yeah. And when I say language here, I'm not talking about speech. I'm talking about this capacity that we mentioned earlier on, which is to have, you know, a rich source of words and the ability to put them together. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we do have some evidence for speech-like stuff in early hominins. Uh, and we know that Neanderthals had a different, had, you know, probably had the capacity to make something like what we make when we speak. Mm -hmm. But it's all speculation, really. So, yeah. yeah, we don't know. Yeah. And I don't know how we would ever know. Yeah. And that, that's always the hard part for me. I mean, it would be something that would be awesome to know, but... Yeah. Time machines. We need yes. to get the physicists to make some time machines. <laughs> so, while we're talking about language. Can you tell us more specifically about your research? Because you're interested um, specifically in word order. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, not quite. Um, okay. So, yes. Uh, the, th the thing is, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm a, th I'm, I'm a theoretician. So fundamentally, oh, one of those. yeah, <laughs> but I'm a, a theoretician who likes to get his hands dirty. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in what the right model for human languages. I mean, how we should explain how human beings are able to pair uh, symbols of some sort, whether it's signs or spoken words and meanings across an absolutely unbounded domain. There doesn't seem to be a limit to it. That's what I'm really interested in. So, <laughs> word order is one tiny part of that uh, and it's a really important part of it, uh, but I'm also interested in all sorts of other aspects of it. So not just word order, but how uh, the shapes of words relate to each other, how the meanings can be constructed, what different, you know, how words are used, how sentences are used, how they enter into our social lives. Uh, I mean, everything really. Okay, so that's really helpful. <laughs> so I'm really sorry, but I can tell you a bit about word order. I have a big project just now. Yeah on uh, word order with uh, um, with a colleague, uh, Jenny Culberson, um, who's in Edinburgh, uh, another colleague, Klaus Abelson, uh, in UCL, and our postdoc in that is Alex Martin. So we just come back, actually, from Kenya. Who okay, to ask you about that? Yeah, so we had two weeks of field work in Kenya, uh, and the project's a project where what we're trying to do is understand whether the kinds of structure I mentioned earlier on are universal to humans, to different human languages, or whether they're sort of learned from what we hear uh, as we grow up. So um, it might strike your listeners as a bit niche. 
<laughs> but we're looking at, 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 set, at phrases like, you know, those three small goats. Yep. I, I wrote a blog in this and it was oranges because my partner Anderson was juggling with some oranges. But <laughs> I've just come back from Kenya and there were a lot of goats. Uh-huh. So uh, a lot of the examples we were looking at were goats. And um, a phrase like that, these three small goats, yep. has, uh, has a noun in it, goats. Okay, and it, there's something that tells you about the goats. They're small. That's yeah. an adjective. There's something that tells you how many goats there are. Three. That's a number. And then there's something that picks out which goats you're talking about. Yeah. Those. Okay, so we find those kinds of things in all languages, or almost all languages that we know of, anyway. And then the question is, like, can they just be randomly ordered? If yeah. you have these four things, there are 24 possible orderings, right? So you, one might expect to see. 24 possible orderings in languages of the world, right? We don't see 24 possible orderings in languages of the world. So actually, there are eight of the possible orders that seem really common. In fact, there are two that are really common. And then there are another six that are pretty common. Uh, and then we just tail off. Yep. So you have what's called a Zipfian distribution, where like the, 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 the most frequent ones are the highest in the distribution and then they kind of curve off mm-hmm. and uh and there's a question about so what what why do we see that yep. if you look at all these different languages hundreds and hundreds of languages why do we see that pattern of frequency of word order it should just be random and yep. it's not random so my hypothesis my and jenny's hypothesis is that there is an underlying uh um structure to these such that the adjective is always closest to the noun yep. And then the uh, the numeral kind of comes in next, and then the demonstrative comes after that, and uh, and that's ca- and if you do that, there's sort of eight possible orders that emerge from that. You get the noun and the adjective, you put one on either side of the other, yeah. and then you add in the numeral and you add that on, you put one on either side of the other, and by doing that you get eight, and those are the eight commonest ones, so that's kind of good evidence. But where does that order come from, and why is it like it is? So. Um, We've got this large project just now to try and test that. Jenny and I had a paper in PNES back in 2014 where we kind of came up with a method where we taught people uh, an artificial language Uh and we manipulated that language to see uh, what was learnable and what wasn't. So we would give our subjects just enough evidence to know, for example, that the adjective or the demonstrative, that is the word like that or those, comes after the noun. But we wouldn't tell them the order of those two things. So they would hear, you know, goats small and goats those. And once they learned these, we'd ask them how to say those small goats. So would they say goats small those, where the adjective is closest to the noun, or would they say goats those small, where the adjective is far away from the noun? But that's the order in English, right? Goats and then those small. Those small is the English order. So if they were just using English, their knowledge of English, then what they should generalize to is goats those small. And if they were using some deeper sort of hidden abstract structure, like the one that's predicted by the typology of languages, they should say goats small those. And we showed in that PNES paper that they say goats small those. However, they're all English speakers, right? Mm -hmm. To do this properly, we really need to look at languages which have different orders from English. So we looked at Thai. Part of the project was we looked at Thai. And Thai has the reverse order for English. Rather than getting our Thai speakers to look at, you know, noun and adjective, goat small, we asked them, we got them to learn language like English, 
right? Where it was small goats or those goats. And then you had to predict whether it was those small goats or small those goats. So, and then we needed the last kind of language that we're looking at, which is a really rare kind of language where you say, goats those small, yep. right? That's a language that looks like it violates this ordering thing that I said earlier on, because the adjective is further away from the noun yep. than the demonstratives, right? Goats those small. So we just come back from Kenya to look at where we looked at such a language. We were looking at a language called Kedaraka, uh -huh. which is spoken in the central province of Kenya. Uh, me, Alex and Jenny drove the six miles north from Nairobi over roads that were basically riverbeds. Uh -huh. uh, and we stayed in a little village called Marimanti there uh, and set up the experiment where we teach native speakers of Kedaraka who have no English whatsoever our artificial language language and we have no idea of what they're doing yet because oh, because exciting. they're doing it right now they're right. doing the experiment right now we've left uh we've left um ras there who are running the experiments with these native speakers so it's quite dangerous really <laughs> as to what we would predict but when, when i was there i actually i wasn't setting up the experiment jenny jenny's the expert there i was trying to figure out the structure of the language so i spent about 14 15 hours with native speakers just going through how nouns and their modifiers work in Kedaraka. That's very Which cool. I have, I have about 200 pages of notes and 14 hours of recordings that are not oh, wow. quite analyzed yet. Yikes. But it's all looking good so oh. far. I'm, it's looking, uh, initially it was weird because initially I thought to myself, okay, this language isn't gonna work like the others. Mm -hmm. They're doing adjectives and numbers in a different kind of way. They're, they're, they're say, rather than saying those small goats or goats those small, they're saying something like goats those which are small. Oh. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah, it looks like I was wrong. From what I can see so far, it looks like it's much more like what English is. It's like those okay. small goats. It's just that they've done something funky to the noun uh -huh. and they stuck it at the start rather than leaving okay. it at the end. That's what it looks like so far, but I, I don't know. I haven't had time to look at it all. Wow. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's the little bit of my research, the tiny little bit of my research that's on word order. So I love this kind of stuff, but if you were to try and rationalize your work to somebody to say, well, what's the point? So there are lots of points. I mean, so one point is, I mean, the basic point is we want to understand stuff. Mm -hmm. It's really important that we do pure science to try and understand how the world works. We have no idea how it might be useful. I mean, a great example is like, you know, so uh, Noam Chomsky, who's the founder of uh, generative linguistics, the area of linguistics I work in, did some work on, you know, on the maths of language back in the 50s. Uh, it gave rise to what's called the Chomsky hierarchy now. It's like totally fundamental to large tracts of computer science, mm -hmm. right? You know, I mean, it's important just to do science, right? Yeah. However, one of the things about doing, so I do a lot of work on endangered languages or languages uh, which are spoken by non-white Western populations. Uh, and um, those communities uh, often have issues. Uh, they, they often have problems with, their, with accessing their culture because their languages are dying away. Yeah. Uh, or um, they have problems because of colonialism where people have said, stop speaking your language, yeah. speak English instead. So even though they still speak the language, it's kind of being a bit mished up and messed up by uh, other languages. Um, so it, in doing this kind of research, 
you can always find ways of giving back to the communities you work with. So I had a project a few years back um, on a Native American language called Kiowa, which is spoken in Oklahoma. I say which is spoken in Oklahoma, but uh, when we started the project, there were maybe about 38 speakers of the language oh, wow. left, yeah. and they were all in their 80s, mm -hmm. late 70s and 80s. Uh, so I worked on this with Daniel Harbour, a colleague of mine at uh, Queen Mary and Laurel Watkins, who's been working with those speakers for many years. Uh, and so we were interested. This is a very free word order language. It's back to word order, you know, but hey, -ho. it's a very free word order language. You can, it looks like you can put anything anywhere you like in the sentence. Uh -huh. But actually, the way that you get the meaning built is not by which word comes where. It's by the shapes of the words. Okay. Right, so... Can you explain what you mean by the shape of a word? Yeah, so in Kiowa, for example, this language I was just telling you about, um, you can say the equivalent of, you know, Daniel, the stick, David, hit. Right? Okay. Uh, and you don't know whether David hit Daniel with a stick or Daniel hit David with a stick if I say that. Yeah. Right? Or, uh, let me actually, I should give you a better example. Daniel, the stick the boys hit, right? Okay. That's not very harsh. Anyway, never mind, <laughs> never mind. So we've got the boys, which is, there's more than one of them, mm -hmm. right? And, da and Daniel, who there's one of, yep. and the stick that there's one of. Yep. Uh, in English, if I say, Daniel, the stick, the boys hit, you're like, I don't know, who, did the boys yeah. hit Daniel? Did Daniel hit the boys? In Kiowa, though, you change the shape of the verb. Okay. And what you do in the verb is you, you put a little bit of sound in uh -huh. front of the verb and what that sound does is it says my subject is a single thing uh, my object is a plural thing uh -huh. and the thing with which I am being done yes. is a single thing uh -huh. and that in Kiowa that might sound like ah yeah. I mean it might just be a okay. tiny little nothing right yeah. and so you can use that information to work out who did what to whom and that means that you've got much freer word order because a lot of the information is on the verb and then the context will give you the rest. Okay. Of course, not all lang I mean, language is full of ambiguities yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time. So languages don't resolve all ambiguities, but they need to be reasonably efficient at getting their message over. So that's what I mean by the shape of the word changing. Okay. Back to the whole start yeah. of that story, which was so we worked with these uh, speakers of this dying language mm -hmm. to find out stuff about the word order. But what we did was we also developed a, a number of materials. We had these recordings from the 1950s and we worked with the last remaining speakers of the language. And what we did there was uh, they helped us understand those recordings. Those recordings were of old legends of the Kiowa people or oh, stories wow. or whatever. They would have died away. No one would have been known what they were yeah. unless we'd worked with these older speakers. Yeah. The older speakers had a ball doing it they uh -huh. totally love doing it and it means that what we were able to do then is translate the stories put them in Kiowa do a sort of gloss of them so we could sort of get people to sort of see which word means what uh -huh. uh, and then we published a bunch of booklets uh, which then younger members who don't speak the language mm -hmm. can use to access the kinds of stories their grandmothers would tell yeah. uh, and then we made a Facebook group out of it and everyone was and then we put the recordings up so people could learn how to speak the yeah. words of the language. So you can actually do a lot of really good work mm -hmm. with the communities that you work with while you're doing the science. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in general, that's good practice. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you asked me, like, you know, if someone said, justify your job, David, uh -huh. the real justification is try and understand the world, yeah. the linguistic part of it. But also, I think through doing that, you can do a lot of good. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And it, there seems to be, thankfully, a, quite a revival of indigenous communities yeah. trying to take back their, their cultures totally. and their languages. And so we were in Australia last year and we got to speak to um, an astrophysicist, but he also invited an Aboriginal storyteller. And they also discovered a lot of uh, phenomena from the stories that they had from however many tens of thousands of years ago. And they realized, oh, this is why the, Surely. You know, the stars were here as a result. Absolutely. It's amazing. Yeah. And also plants. So like yeah, local legends about plants and what they're good for. Yeah. Local legends about actually even about things like climate change. Mm -hmm. So yes. uh, there's there's tons of stuff that you can learn. And all, I mean, the, there's a linguist called Ken Hale who actually worked on many Australian Aboriginal languages uh, as well as many, many other languages. He passed away a few years ago, but I mean, he said every time a language dies, it's like dropping a bomb in a museum, mm -hmm. right? Because actually you lose, you, sorry, you lose the culture yeah. and you lose all of the knowledge that's part of that culture. And, and for some uh, Aboriginal cultures um, and other uh, native cultures, actually the language is a, a repository of the culture. Mm -hmm. Kinship, complex kinship terms, stories, all that kind of stuff. It's like, it's part of what makes them who they are. And when you lose their language, yeah. you lose access to that. So I think it's an important part of what linguists can do. Mm -hmm. uh, not Obviously not all the linguists do that, but I think it's something that, you know, it's worthwhile doing when we can, certainly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so one of the, my favorite things about languages is the fact that there are certain words that only make sense in a particular language. And I think one of the most recent examples that came up is this Danish word, what is it, hig? Hygge. Hygge, which is that kind of sensation of being comfortable. Coziness. Yeah. So are there more words that are being adopted by other languages now? Do you see that as a result of this kind of globalization we have? Oh gosh. Uh, um, so, you know I said I was interested in word order. Yes. <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm not, I mean, so words themselves are fascinating little creatures. Um, but I'm kind of not so interested myself in these, in, in words as packets of culture. Okay. So if you think to yourself about hygge in Danish, it's like it sort of takes the word and it packages up part of the culture into the words, yep. right? And that is fascinating. It's a really interesting piece of linguistic anthropology. There's loads of uh, interesting things there. It's not kind of what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of interested in patterns of language in general. Yeah. So like, you know, I mean, so if you think about words, the kind of thing I'd be interested in is, you know, why in so many languages do uh, you do the grammar of words by suffixing rather than prefixing, right? Why, you know, yeah. why do so many languages have, you know, why, why is it the case that um, verbs agree with sub... If a verb agrees with an object yep. in a language, verbs that agree with objects, those languages always have the verbs agreeing with subjects as well, but not yep. vice versa. There are weird asymmetries in language to do with words and to do with structure yep. that I think are ways into how human cognition works. Yeah, so and that's kind of what I'm interested in. I mean, so like words as, packet, uh, words as packages of culture, I find a very... That's too difficult. Okay. <laughs> I just I just find it too. I don't even know where I would start. I mean, I can I can measure words that have prefixes versus suffixes. I can look at the frequencies of word orders. Yeah. I can delve into Kitalaka and find out you know where things can go and where things can't go. Yeah. Uh, but the other stuff is really hard. Yeah. That's so I mean, so you asked the question of like whether uh, words are you know, globalizing mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Absolutely. I mean, languages always borrow from each other, 
and uh, and so words travel, mm-hmm. and as they travel, they change. Uh, but that's true within a language as well as across languages. I mean, just think about the ways that teenagers in East London speak right now. I mean, you know, it's harder to understand than Chaucer, right? <laughs> you know, you're kind of like going like, what are they saying? I remember like I had to give a talk in a, it was a, uh, for an EU project I was part of. And we were actually looking at the speech of teenagers in London, uh-huh. looking at how their speech was in, impacted by the multilingual environment that they live in. I was, of course, looking at grammar, yep. right, and, and how, the, how the words kind of come together. Um, but just actually, you, you can't get away from the, the lexus, the actual words themselves. They're yep. just crazy, right? Yeah. And you have no idea what they're saying, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. So absolutely, words, words move around. They have short lives, sometimes words. They pop mm-hmm. in. Think of slang, right? Quite yeah. often it's like, you know, you're like, oh, that's cool. Oh, cool is not cool anymore. Cool. Oh my God, cool is now okay if you pronounce it with a Californian vowel and you say cool, right? You know, I mean, like, so words just pop in and out of, of fashion, really. Yeah. Uh, and there is, it is a fascinating thing, but it's quite difficult. So I was wondering about the idea that uh, we were talking earlier about um, people who are discouraged from speaking their native tongues. I know this happened a lot in the States where Hispanic kids were told not to speak Spanish and to some degree this was because the teachers thought that by speaking two languages you were going to hinder their learning. Now is this something that we know more about and uh, because I've been reading now that actually bilingual students do better with a lot of kind of... Yeah, it's still controversial but I think that there is, I mean, there's a... There's not a consensus, but there's a larger majority of people who work on bilingualism who think that in the end it confers an advantage. Okay. Uh, um, and there's a sort of set of questions about, uh, so not an advantage in as much as, I mean, speaking a number of languages is going to give you an advantage, right? Yeah. Uh, um, just because you can speak to more people and yes. access more, more stuff. But so some people have said there's a cognitive advantage. And the idea there is that if you have two languages, when you want to use one, you have to suppress the other mm-hmm. and vice versa. So in a sense, that gives your brain a little bit of exercise, uh-huh. right? You're, con- you're continually suppressing yep. some stuff, which allows you, which is just like working those muscles in your brain, which makes it better at doing other stuff. So yep. that's the idea of the bilingual advantage. And there does seem to be evidence for it, but it is controversial. Uh-huh. But <laughs> the evidence is broadly more towards that than it is against it. So it's not by any means settled, but I certainly think that people shouldn't worry about having their kids grow up bi or trilingual. It is actually the norm in most of the world. It's just our weird English. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, so, obviously, I'm from a bilingual household, so I'm yeah. Saying, yeah, of course, this is normal for me. It is to- it's really very common. And you look at, look at Africa, for example. Uh-huh. I mean, I've just come back from Kenya. People speak like three languages without even thinking about yeah. it. Their local language, Swahili and English, yeah. right? Without, I mean, not even thinking about it. They might speak two or three local languages, depending upon whether where their mother and father were, where their mother's sister's from. This is totally normal. It's yeah. been like that for most of human history yeah. probably well my mom spoke four. yeah i mean it's certainly not something that is problematic and i think that the notion that it would slow kids down at school yeah. might be because 
there is more information. So kids are taking a bit longer to get ar- their heads around yeah. it, right? But uh, that doesn't mean to say that they're not going to end up with both of those languages or all three of those languages quite happily. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, there's no evidence that it leads to any kind of language deficit. Mm-hmm. So educate your children bilingually. <laughs> Or at least give them the opportunity. Yeah, to yeah, totally, totally. It's much easier when you're younger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how many languages do you use? Oh, no. Currently? I had to do it. Uh, well, I'm just going to cop out of that one by saying there is one human language. Oh. <laughs> it's the oh. under... <laughs> uh, um, I really only... The only other language I speak reasonably well is Scottish Gaelic, which is what I did all my initial field work on. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so when I was... Uh, when I was do my PhD and then after that uh, I I worked in Scottish Gaelic but 10 12 years ago I had a um, I had a Lieberhume grant and I went and spent three or four months in the south of Skye where I didn't speak any English at all oh, wow. which was great that was really good yeah. I was dreaming in Gaelic by the end of it I did speak <laughs> English because I spoke to my partner on the phone okay. occasionally he has refused to learn Gaelic which is absolutely infuriating Shame. considering Shame. he's from the north of scotland <laughs> you anson would think has since snuck into the conversation hi anson <laughs> okay that was anson's gaelic how are you anson i'm well thank you so how many people speak it fluently um so census data shows about thirty thousand. Okay. i think it may be a little bit optimistic um, but there are, uh, it's interesting, there are a lot of younger kids who speak Gaelic way more fluently than their parents do because there's been uh, a system of Gaelic nurseries in okay. parts of the Highlands and in, actually in Glasgow and Edinburgh uh, where kids are being sent to Gaelic schools by non-Gaelic speaking parents. Sometimes their grandparents or great-grandparents will speak Gaelic, so then the grandparents and the kids can chat to each other okay. leaving the parents <laughs> out which is a kind of interesting thing yeah. right because normally actually what happens when languages die is that um is that the grandparents will have stopped their kids speaking mm-hmm. the language because of some you know government whatever yeah. and then their so but the, the, their kids will you know they'll get a bit of it because they're they will listen to their parents but their kids won't so normally what you get is the grandparents and the grandkids not being able to speak to each other and that's i mean languages are very fragile so they can die quite quickly like that right you just need one generation um but uh this is kind of the inverse of that right so the kids who go to the gallic nurseries can speak with their grandparents and the parents have no idea what they're saying yeah so I've also been trying to get David to learn Punjabi for a long time. Yeah, you should learn Punjabi. It's not going to happen, unfortunately. Nah. But I think Punjabi would be quite a useful language to know. To gossip about. Yeah, yeah, maybe not so much in parts of London, maybe not in Southall, right? No, that's true. No, for sure. So West London would be a nightmare. But yeah. this is where we switch to Spanish, you see. Oh, it's perfect. And then in Spain, we switch to Punjabi. Yeah. But Gaelic would be great, that right? So amazing. Anson should just learn Gaelic. Anson? There is an apocryphal story, I don't know, oh, yeah. it's probably just uh, urban legend, of two old Gaelic-speaking grannies in a bus in Glasgow, uh-huh. and they see this, like, punky, like, girl coming on, and they're like, she's just a <laughs> disgrace, look at her, watch it, torn tights, and, like, look at those earrings, and they're saying all this in Gaelic, right? Yes. And, uh, and uh, at the end, 
uh, of the bus ride, the girl turns right and says in perfect Gaelic to them, well, my grandmother said I should never speak ill of people like that and yeah. stops off. Yeah. I'm sure it's apocryphal. Oh my God. So David, while he was on the tube on the way over, just completely um, got carried away with sending me questions for you. And that this all goes back to him being a computer scientist, mm -hmm. a mathematician, and so on. So, um, let me pick one. Can David just ask? No, no. Next. no. Um, so the last one was, you compare maths with linguistics. Is there a meaningful difference with regards to the idea that maths creates, whereas linguists and scientists discover? Huh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I certainly think it's true that I think of linguistics as an empirical science. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that is, there's something that we don't understand and we use the tools of science, including mathematics, as an important tool in order to try and understand what that thing is. Uh, and so I think maybe there is some truth to that. I don't profess to be a good enough or knowledgeable of mathematicians to be able to uh, create anything myself, but I think I'm a reasonable linguist. So yeah, I think that I think we use the tools of maths to try and un and the methodologies of science to try and understand language. So I guess the, I guess the question is, um, you know, so physicists use maths to uh, discover stuff. Mathematicians fundamentally create new maths. Do, do what do linguists do? I think there is a sense in which theoreticians. Oh look, we've got linguistics going on. Hello. Hi, what's your name? We are going to have a new podcast. Oh, hello. What's your name? I get Are you going to sing a song for us? It's very cute. Is it a penguin? It's a porg. Yeah, a porg. It's a porg. So hang on, just just stay there. Can we leave it up for a second? Yeah. So so this is a porg, right? Is this a porg? What are two of these called? What are two of these called? If this is one porg, what are two of them called? Is it porg? Is he a Porg. Yes, yeah. porg. And if there was two of them, what would they be called? If there were two of them, what would they be called? Two, if I was one as well. What would they be called? Oh no, we're not going to get it. This is the challenge of doing experiments with yes. children. Yes, <laughs> yes. But she learned the word because she said porg. Yes. But we didn't get her to pluralize it. No. No, unfortunately. So how old are the kids that you normally do these experiments with? So um, the, the WOG experiment type things, the one uh -huh. I was mentioning, they're all done on very young. I mean, that's an experiment from like the 60s. It's okay. a really old experiment. It's been replicated a gazillion times uh -huh. and made much more sophisticated to try and see, you know, what, what, kinds of learn, what kinds of rules can kids learn and what can't they? And people do this work on from neonates up uh-huh okay I mean, on every i mean because it's uh, there's a set of questions about 
what is the state of linguistic knowledge at every moment during a child's development mm -hmm. you know to what you know at what point do kids have you know fairly mature kinds of linguistic knowledge and you know when is it kind of on its way and there's some fascinating stuff i mean like they're like kids will often you know like generalize the rules not to what they hear but to something else that is they'll they'll glean a rule of grammar from uh what they hear around them that isn't the actual rule of grammar right mm -hmm. so i mean anyone who has kids knows this because they say things like you know uh the past of took right i mean uh, sorry the past of take yeah. which everyone knows is took they will say taked yep. or oh, even yeah. tooked, mm -hmm. right? So they're generalizing the rule that says add ed because they hear that with other things and they're generalizing yeah. it to other uh, verbs. So, so kids always do this and sometimes they generalize quite complex patterns to patterns that you see in other languages, uh -huh. right? So uh, it's a cool pattern in, uh, in certain varieties of uh, Swiss German um, whereby you, um, if you want to say, if you want to ask a question about something, you, you just say something, you know, you say, um, uh, I broke the bottle. Mm -hmm. What did you break? Yes. Right? So the object, the bottle, turns into the word what. Yeah. And it goes to the start of the sentence. Yep. You see that in English. You can also do that over a longer distance. So I said you broke the bottle. Mm -hmm. I said Mary thought you broke the bottle. What did you say Mary thought you broke? Right? So you take that what and you stick it right at the front. Yeah. Okay. Some varieties of German, what they do is they repeat the word what. Uh -huh. So you get, what did you say, what Mary thought, what you broke. You repeat the what. Okay? Swiss German, uh, Bavarian German. Uh -huh. I'm probably going to get the German wrong, but anyway, some varieties of German <laughs> do this. And other languages as well. Dutch kids go through a, a, a period while, as they're learning Dutch. Dutch doesn't do this, mm -hmm. just like English, where they do that. Oh. So, they, so it's like what they're doing is they're generalizing to what would be a good linguistic system. Yeah. Right? You see it somewhere else. You see it in Bavarian German. The Dutch kids are not hearing Bavarian German. Yeah. Right? But that's a good linguistic system. So they're like, oh, well, I'll go for that one. Right? And they try it out. They try it out for a day or two. They're like, oh, people aren't saying that. And they stop doing it. So it's almost like, you know, cell death or something. Right? You've uh -huh. got all these like possibilities appear yeah. and then they die away yeah. and then you get left over with the oops I think I just That's hammered fun. the microphone and then you get left over with the actual language that is the language of the community oh. so that's very very common in how kids acquire language yeah. and we actually not I haven't done these experiments but my colleague Jenny Culbertson who I'm doing the those four small goats uh -huh. stuff with so she does similar things with kids Right. And uh, teaches kids bits of non-existent languages uh -huh. to see how they generalize those languages. And that way you can see a lot, you can find out a lot about the process that the human cognitive system goes through as it changes when it learns a language. Yeah. So uh, how does this relate to the fact that most adults, when they're learning a language, what they'll do is they'll directly translate. Yeah. So you quite often see weird patterns, but I guess that's, that's just because they don't have any other way of conveying the message. Yeah. So again, it really depends upon how fluent the, uh, the language learner is. So you're, you're absolutely right that what happens at certainly earlier stages of learning a second language mm -hmm. is that you 
calc on your first language. That yep. is, you, you use the word order of your first language mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, and then as time goes on, you begin to learn the patterns of the new language and you stop doing that so much. Mm -hmm. So as you get more fluent, you begin to learn the grammatical patterns of your second language. And, but you're never going to be quite at what a native speaker is at, mm -hmm. at because fundamentally you're not devoting most of your cognitive resources yep. to doing that. You're earning a living or yes. whatever, right? Uh, and so you never have that capacity. There are cases of people who just seem to never lose that capacity. So there's, uh, so I mentioned Ken Hale earlier on, who was this famous linguist who made the comment about the uh, death of a language being like dropping a bomb in a museum. Mm -hmm. And he was one of these people who would go into, uh, you know, a fairly remote tribal area where he wanted to work on the new language. And he would have picked it up in a few weeks or a month or so. Wow. Yeah. That wow. is, I, I just cannot do anything remotely like that. Yeah. So there are people who have that ability, but I think they're like, you know, they're like those like people who can do amazing music or amazing art mm -hmm. or something, right? Not lesser mortals like me. Anyway. Well, most of us, yeah, I would most say. Of us, I think, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> God, we could be here for hours, honestly. <laughs> but I think I'm probably going to finish up with this one, which is um, <laughs> names sure remain hidden to protect the guilty. But some friends of ours have suggested that English language is a better, better one in terms of expressiveness compared to other European languages. So do linguists think of some human languages as, I'm not going to go for better, I'm going to say more expressive than others? So in general, no. Uh, um, I think that that's extremely unlikely. And uh, the question is what they mean by more expressive. If they mean, does it have a larger vocabulary? Are there more words in the dictionary? Mm. Sure. Some languages have a larger vocabulary than others. But as I've been kind of, saying all the way through you know it's not the words you have it's what you do with them that matters <laughs> so uh i think linguists in general agree that languages can be as expressive as each other um however i there there are some uh i mean languages work differently so some languages have very complex morph what's called morphology. Mm -hmm. So the word shapes are really, really complex. Mm -hmm. So you could sort of express, like, you know, in, in, in Inuktitut or, uh, or languages like that, you can express whole sentences, things we say in whole sentences in, in English as like one word, mm -hmm. right? You know, I have in my first year lecture, and unfortunately I can't remember it, but it's a single, and I think it's a West Greenlandic word, and it means they were used unsuccessfully for the soles of boots. One word. Right? Wow. You might think, oh my God, West Greenlandic is way more expressive than any <laughs> other language. But of course, what it does is it puts all of the grammar inside the word. Uh huh. So okay. that particular word is built up of numerous parts, and all those parts can be reused in other words. Mm -hmm. So it's like you've got the whole grammar of a sentence inside a word. So some languages can be extremely expressive like that. Other languages, uh, Vietnamese, for example, likes to have basically one word per concept or grammatical concept, right? Mm -hmm. So past tense. In English, we say kick, kicked. In uh, other languages which don't do this, you would have a whole separate word for the ED bit. Uh -huh. Or cat, cats, you'd have a whole separate word to pluralize it. So other languages, so languages vary in, you know, 
how much they pack into a word so the words can be differently expressive but how you put those bits together as far as we know languages are not more expressive than other ones so i think Mm -hmm. your friends are wrong (laughs) david is vindicated and this will go back to my smug friend who only speaks english so uh yeah so there's a hint of irony to that but um yeah, like I say, we could sit here for hours, but we don't want to take up that much of your time well, or anybody I, else's. I believe there's potential for a beer, right? <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. Um, but yes, actually, no, before we go, you have to tell us about your book. Oh. So uh, we can plug your book. I have a book coming out. <laughs> it's coming out next week, although apparently I'm being tweeted. People are, have Sharing got things. copies. I don't know how that works. <laughs> I, I, my publisher seems to have a very lax notion of publication date. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, um, it's called Language Unlimited, the science behind our most creative power. And the idea of it is kind of some of something of what I've been talking about, that we have a sort of special mental technology mm-hmm. that other species don't have, and that's what allows us to do what we do with language. The whole book is basically that. Yes. But uh, I talk about lots of uh, psychological and neurolinguistic experiments. There's a ton of languages in it. Uh, and the thing I'm most proud about is that the first, the first thing in the index is absolutely fabulous. <laughs> and the last thing in the index is Zina Kantan sign language. Oh. I think that basically tells you all you need to know about the, about the book. Which is everything. Which is everything. Yeah, totally. Fantastic. Well, we very much look forward to it coming out so that we can have a proper read. Cool. Maybe next time get you to sign it for us. Absolutely. No problem. Um, But in the meanwhile, we would like to say thank you so much for your time. And yeah, we've had a really awesome time today. It's been a total pleasure, even with the the, uh, our extra experimenter that came along. Oh, we just added to it. She was awesome. She was awesome. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks very much. His hand over mine, he says, come walk with me. Oceans and mountains, distance and sound, floating the yeah. ether. Yeah, I left the club and got on the train. Straight away. Straight away at seven because I was chairing this large, this major session with two quite important linguists and an audience of about meh, 200 people. And I didn't sleep because I mean, I couldn't sleep because clubbing. And uh, also, I thought I'll sleep in the train. I left them in the club, <laughs> and I I I got in the train, and it was full of linguists, and they were like, <laughs> "David, hello!" So they just like chatted to me all the way there. I basically got off the train and then had to uh, chair this session, and I just was like a blithering idiot. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I was asking, you know, trying to, I was asking those idiotic questions. Uh, it was just did that, stop you clubbing? that did that basically stopped me going clubbing. <laughs> it really changed my. Uh, I was like, I can't Your outlook. I can't do this and be a professional. the old adage never to work with animals or children but at least Stefania gave us a real life look into the realities of being an experimentalist. Thank you to David Adger for chatting with us, his partner Anson and our friends Arturo and Edward for joining us. Thanks to the kindly staff at Nude Coffee Roasters 
And last but not least, to David's friend Ronnie for the music. We'll have a link, as always, to the SoundCloud page in our show notes. Finally, don't forget to check out David's book, Language Unlimited, which is available in all good bookstores near you. We look forward to the audio version where we get to hear his dulcet tones again.
Can you say hippopotamus? Hippopotamus! 